Welcome to another episode of the MIA All Day Podcast. This is your host, Carlos Ledo, and we got a little special episode for you today. Starting a new series called Who's the Boss? And what we're going to do here over the next few episodes is I'm going to compare, uh, or actually not compare, but make a case for each of the five national championship teams that the Hurricanes have had in, the, in their storied past and give you arguments as to why that team specifically should be considered the greatest of all time. So what do I mean? What I mean is I'm going to go by every championship year, 83, 87, 89, 91, and 01, and tell you, give you an episode on why that specific team should be considered the best out of all five of those championship teams. Now, I know what you're saying. Why are we having this debate? 2001's the greatest of all time. Blah, 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 blah. That's not the point. The point is there are arguments to be made. We're going to make them, and we're going to talk about all the, the reasons why each of these teams deserve their flowers Starting with the 1983 National Champions. That's right. The OGs in the game, led by Howard Schnellenberger. So today, we are going to find out why the 1983 Miami Hurricanes are the greatest championship team the Hurricanes have ever had. Let's get it started. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give some comparison points in terms of data that's going to be the same across the board for all the teams to match them up that way, so sort of comparing apples to apples. But I'm also going to throw in some things that are unique about each team to try and make the case for that specific program for that year. So let's talk about the 1983 Miami Hurricanes. So where do we start with these Hurricanes? Well, we start with the fact that this team uh, was not expected to compete for a national championship. As a matter of fact, they started the season unranked. The only team out of the five national championship teams that started off the season unranked and led themselves to a national championship. Not only that, but in 1979, when Howard Schnellenberger, Berger, Howard Schnellenberger, Berger, uh, yes, I'm not editing this, so I'm going to go straight through it. I don't care. I don't care if I mess up. You guys are going to have to deal with it. Howard, El Pipa, the pipe, took over in 1979, uh, had a storied career with the Dolphins, obviously, was part of the coaching staff with Don Shula in the perfect season, and uh, promised a national championship. In five seasons. And what did he come out and do in 1979? Threw up a big five and six burger. Did absolutely nothing. But eventually, his work culminated in an 11-1 season and a championship in 1983 for the Hurricanes. Now, going into the season, uh, the year before, in 1982, the Hurricanes finished 7-4. and four, Had Jim Kelly at quarterback. Had a good season. But nobody anticipated a big jump because, of course, they lost Jim Kelly, who was a great quarterback. Arguably, alongside George Meyer, the greatest quarterback to play at the University of Miami to that point. Um, and nobody really expected the Canes to compete. But Howard Schnellenberger had a plan. One of the things he started doing uh, during his tenure with the Hurricanes, especially in that 1982 season, recruiting a lot of freshmen, uh, was attacking South Florida, creating the state of Florida that we know as the state of Miami as we know it now, down from Palm Beach County all the way to, to South Florida, and locking up all the talent down here. Convincing the, the kids down here in South Florida from the local schools um, like Northwestern, like Columbus, like Miami High to stay home and play for the Hurricanes as opposed to going off elsewhere and looking and seeking glory uh, and, and promoting a program that had nothing to do with them or where they grew up and where they're from. So that did two things. All right. It actually did more than two things. It did three things in my mind that were really important. Number one. It created a framework for how future coaches would recruit, not just down here for the Hurricanes, but, I mean, in general, where they, they would identify South Florida as a hotbed of talent and start to try and get into South Florida 
and attack these kids and try and pull them out of here, which as we've seen, some of the best programs in the country and the modern age have gotten better and have really built their foundation on South Florida kids. Number two, it actually created a closer connection between the community and this Miami Hurricanes football program, because now you had an incentive for the community to come watch a program that nobody was really interested in before. So Howard really tied that in together and really created that bond between the South Florida community and Miami in in general um, and the Miami Hurricanes football program. So now it wasn't just all about the Dolphins. Now the Hurricanes were a main player amongst the community and and had a lot of the the inner city behind them because these kids that had grown up in Miami were now playing in the Orange Bowl in front of their family for the hometown team and, and really brought in that sense of community that would last for decades here with the Hurricanes and really still goes on today. So you had that blueprint and then you had the foundation for how um, – how Howard would build how Howard built his program would be how future coaches here in Miami began to use that uh, you know build their programs and use that as their foundation as their blueprint moving forward. So, how good was this team? Well, let's take a look at some of the numbers. So, we know they finished at eleven and one during the season. They averaged twenty six points a game, basically twenty six point one, which ranked them twenty eighth in the nation. So, when you think about this team, you think about Bernie Kosar, you think about Albert Bentley, Eddie Brown. You think about, you know, Alonzo Highsmith. You think about the guys that, you know, are, are on the offensive side of the ball, but they weren't really that dynamic. Yeah, they were innovative in the way they ran their offense, but 28th in the country, 26 points a game isn't all that impressive. It's good, but it's not great. However, on the defensive side of the ball, this is where this team was really shining. Uh, they were only allowing 11.3 points per game, ranked third in the country. And as we know, or as you should know, this team – Open the season with a loss to the hated Florida Gators, uh, 28 to three. And after they gave up 28 points to the Florida Gators, they averaged only giving up nine points per game the rest of the season, which was incredible. Um, the average margin of victory for this team was 18.4 points per game, which is pretty solid, which is pretty solid. Um, they had three wins against ranked opponents. They had a win against number 13, Notre Dame. Number 12, West Virginia, and the third one was in the Orange Bowl in the championship game against number one, Nebraska. An interesting fact about that number 12, West Virginia team, they were led by Jeff Hostetler. That's right, man. The Haas, future NFL quarterback, future Super Bowl champion with the New York Giants and future quarterback of the Los Angeles Raiders. Uh, were they in L.A. at the time? Or Oakland? Yeah, it was L.A. I believe it was still L.A. So the L.A. Raiders. Interesting fact about that game also. Miami held West Virginia to two two yards rushing. That's right. Two yards rushing. Imagine that. And came out with the victory. So this Hurricanes team, not overly impressive with the numbers. Uh, their strength of schedule, though, was 15th in the country, which is pretty impressive. It's pretty good. Um, their margin of victory in the championship game, which is another stat they're going to be looking at across the board, was one point. Not highly impressive, but again, we'll be talking about number one Nebraska and giving some uh, some numbers on them and showing why this was such an impressive win. They had a close call outside of Florida State, so we're going to have two different categories there. We're going to do close calls, just a general close call against a team that they should have blown out. And two, how they do against FSU, right? This is really important with every championship team. How did they end up performing against FSU? That's going to give you bonus points if you did well against the, the Seminoles. And also, depending on how good that Seminoles team was at that time, that's going to boost you up as well. So this team, believe it or not, was the first 17-16 game to end on a field goal attempt. This was not wide right one, but in this game, the Hurricanes 
came down the field, down 16-14 against Florida State. Bernie Kosar let them down the field, got them down to about the two, three yard line, and they kicked a field goal to win the game as time expired and beating Florida State 17 to 16. The close call game in this season was against East Carolina. They almost laid a, an egg against the Pirates and beating them only 12 to 7. So that's, that's some interesting information about this team that could lead you either way about, you know, what you think about them. Um, statistically not overly impressive again from the individual side. Bernie. 2,329 yards, passing, 15 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, 61.5% completion percentage, had a rating of 128.5. Albert Bentley was leading rusher at 722 yards, five rushing touchdowns. He had 294 yards rushing, uh, receiving sorry, to go along with that and one touchdown. And the leading receiver was downtown Eddie Brown, 640 yards. Miami High Singery, he had himself five touchdowns during the year. So, Another interesting fact about this team. This was only the second national champion to average more yards passing per game than rushing. So this is sort of the other thing that this team did. This team began to usher in the modern era of passing football. Obviously, it's not, it wasn't elevated to the point where it is today where everything's spread and people are throwing the ball 30, 40 times a game. But this was the first time that a college football team began to play more like a pro football team and really started spreading the ball around through the air and trusting the quarterback and throwing the ball more than they were running it, which was innovative, which is ahead of its time at that point. Um, although you still had receivers in three-point stances, which was kind of weird, but this offense was ahead of the game in terms of what college football was doing at that time, and that would only spur more innovation as other head coaches took over this program and uh, began to to be and it began to be known for its quarterback play. Right? We we know this as we knew this for a long time as quarterback you, and it all started with this season and Bernie Kosar. And uh, the coaching staff. Now, speaking speaking of the coaching staff, this is something else we're going to look at. What kind of coaches did these championship teams have? How did these guys, where did these guys end up afterwards? What kind of success did they have? Well, we know about Howard, but we also had an offensive coordinator by the name of Gary Stevens, who ended up being the offensive coordinator for the Miami Dolphins, coaching a guy named Dan Marino, had the luxury of having the Marx Brothers as well. He was a very successful coordinator for the Dolphins for a long time, until towards the end of his career when things got a little haywire. Um, and he gave us, to me, one of my all-time favorite quotes ever in sports. Uh, when a reporter asked him why the Dolphin offense was struggling, he simply quoted, uh, his quote was simply, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit, which to me is just fantastic. Um, the defensive coordinator for this team was Tom Olivadotti. He was a great college defensive coordinator, especially for the Hurricanes. He souked for the Miami Dolphins. Um, if any of you grew up in the 90s as Dolphins fans, you know Tom Olivadotti, and, and, and it's a curse word. Olivadotti is a curse word. Uh, I should be bleeping it out right now because he could not find a way to get that defense right and had no answers for the Buffalo Bills. The K-Gun was just ramming it up our shoots every time we played the Buffalo Bills, and especially in the playoffs. I still have nightmares about Thurman Thomas. Hell, I have nightmares about Kenny Lofton uh, and, and Scott Kelso, uh, you know, Cornelius Bentley. I got all those guys, man. All those guys in my mind. Uh, Bruce Bruce Smith, the, the list goes on and on. I just don't even want to discuss it. Um, and unfortunately, it was done to us on the offensive side of the ball by the former Miami Hurricane great Jim Kelly. So there we go. Tom Olivadotti, thank you. They had other great coaches like Hubbard Alexander, who went on to coach wide receivers um, in the NFL for a while. Mike Archer was the uh, DB coach. He ended up being the head coach at LSU for a time. And they had Mark Tressman, who ends up, of course, as we know, 
being the offensive coordinator for a lot of different places, uh, being the head coach for the Chicago Bears, longtime offensive coordinator and head coach in the Canadian League, and rumored, rumored to have given away the game plan in 1986 uh, to the Penn State Nittany Lions. But we'll leave that at that. We won't mention that anymore. Traitor. Anyway, so let's continue on discussing these 1983 Hurricanes. So as I said, Howard took over in 79, promised that national championship within five years. You know, we get here in 83, excited about the season. There's a lot of question marks. You lost Jim Kelly. You lost a lot of guys off the 82 team, which was relatively successful. Uh, You have a skinny freshman quarterback that you're trusting to air the ball out a lot. And you open up the season with a 28-3 loss to Florida State, and you're already unranked. So right now, prospects of a national championship not looking very good. But the Hurricanes begins a roll. They, they, they get it going, right? They beat Notre Dame. They beat West Virginia. They beat Florida State on the last field goal, last second field goal. And at the end of the season, not many people remember this because I'll tell you what, I sure shit didn't remember. I thought they were ranked 30 in the season. The Hurricanes were ranked number five going into the Orange Bowl. So the Hurricanes prize for... You know, going going undefeated the rest of the year after losing Florida State is to play the number one team in the country, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Now, is this the most impressive team that Miami played in a national championship game? Could be. Could be. There's an argument for Oklahoma in 87, like my man Man Navarro uh, told me the other night when I discussed this with him. But at the time, although Nebraska hadn't won a national championship, the way they had been rolling the last few years, and especially this season, many were calling this 83 Nebraska team the greatest college football team of all time, and they were just awaiting the coronation in that Orange Bowl after they beat down the Miami Hurricanes to have that crown placed upon them as the greatest of all time. Uh, Nebraska in 82 had lost only one game, and it was a 27-24 loss to Penn State on the road in Happy Valley uh, early in the season. And Penn State eventually ended up winning the national championship. Nebraska won the rest of the games the rest of the year. They finished third in the polls behind uh, Penn State. And I forget who the number two team was. doesn't really matter for our purposes. Not going to care. Um, they also went 12-1 the previous year. This was a program that was rolling. They came into this Orange Bowl game with a Heisman Trophy winner by the name of Mike Rozier at running back. Mike Rozier had 2,148 yards rushing. He had 29 rushing touchdowns. And 7.8 yards, average 7.8 yards per carry. 7.8 yards per carry. Those are ridiculous numbers in any era. How how good was this Nebraska offense? They were averaging 547 yards per game. 402 of those were on the ground. Okay? Now, what was the most impressive thing about them? They averaged 50.3 points per game to lead the country in scoring that year. I read a stat. And I also saw another video, in a YouTube video, of a uh, record of a Hurricanes retrospective on this game and on this uh, this team. Nebraska football in 1983. Are you ready for this? Averaged more points per game than their basketball team did. Can you believe that? Nebraska 1983 football averaged more points per game than 1983 Nebraska basketball. That's impressive. Okay, so going into this game. This Nebraska team was a juggernaut. No one expected the Hurricanes to win. Okay, Nebraska was number one coming into the game. The Hurricanes were ranked fifth, so nobody was even thinking national championship for the Hurricanes. Yeah, of course. They had an outside shot because everybody that they had ranked ahead of them were playing different teams. So, yeah, everybody lost in front of them. 
They had a shot if they beat Nebraska, but really, were they going to beat Nebraska? Who were the teams in front of them? Well, number, number two was Texas. Number three was Auburn. And number four was Illinois. So Hurricanes go into this game not knowing what's going to happen. Well, here's what happens. Texas loses to number seven, Georgia, 10-9 to nine in a barn burner in the Cotton Bowl. Talk about a, an offensive slugfest, 10-9 to nine in the Cotton Bowl. My God, I would have needed a lot of beer to get through that game. Three yards in a cloud of dust. Give me 16 Miller Lights. Um, because back then they didn't have Megalob Ultras. We, I'm not even sure they had Miller Lights back then, to be quite honest. Might have just been 16 Millers, 16 Buds. Because that's all you had back in the day. There's probably three. Like, you only had three TV channels back in the day. I think there was only three beers at that point in America in 1983. Well, there might have been Schlitz and maybe some Malt Liquor Bowl. I would have gone with a Quarter Bowl back in that day. Well, anyway, I digress. And then uh, in the other bowl games, Auburn survived beating number eight Michigan 9-7 in the Sugar Bowl. So not a very impressive win by Auburn. Yet they were number three. They continued to, to hang in there for the national championship hunt. Um, and Illinois, this was the, the, the big one. Number four, Illinois, got absolutely mollywopped 45-9 by UCLA in the Rose Bowl, unranked UCLA. So now it's basically come down to, you know, Nebraska wins. Obviously, they claim the title. Or if Nebraska loses... Auburn ends up being the national championship, unless Miami could beat Nebraska, which would be pretty impossible in most people's minds. Going into the game, the Hurricanes were a 10.5-point underdog against this Nebraska team. Okay, They came out, got up 17-0 real quick on Nebraska. They thought they had this game in hand. Nebraska said, no, 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 no. Here we go. Nebraska tied the game back up 17-17. They pulled the old fumble ruski in the Hurricanes. Canes fight back, get back up 31-7. Hang on for dear life, 31-17. Hang on for dear life. But here comes Nebraska again. Two touchdowns late in the game. Uh, a late fourth quarter touchdown by Nebraska on an option uh, on the right side down in the, near the goal line. And the game is 31-30. If Nebraska ties, they likely win the national championship because they are not undefeated, but they have no losses, unlike Auburn, who has one loss during the year. Um but Tom Osborne, being the man that he is, being the stellar gentleman, the upstanding gentleman that he is, decides he's not going to leave it up to chance. Plus, he wants to win the Orange Bowl, and he wants to win uh, the game as champions. Champions win. Champions will play for ties. And, of course, we've got the famed rollout to the right by Turner Gill. Throws to the end zone, and Kenny Calhoun's fingernail knocks the ball away, and the Hurricanes have won the Orange Bowl. Uh, and, you know, not anticipating anything other than Winning the game, at the end of it all, this team becomes the first national champion in Miami Hurricanes football history. So what are some arguments now that I've given you in the history give you the numbers and all that stuff for this team? Well, first and foremost, they're the OGs, right? They're the first ones to do it. And when you're the first ones to do it, you get some bonus points, right? Number two, this was a the, the only team of the five national championship teams that had no foundation, right? This team had to be built from the ground up, from scratch. There was no state of Miami at that point. There was no recruiting plan. There was no pipeline from, you know, South Florida programs into the Miami Hurricanes. There was no national recruiting operation to get this team built up like the 01 team. They get guys from different places. Hell, they even got somebody from Canada, Brent Romper. They got uh, Ed Reed from Louisiana. So you've got these other teams with other mixes of and opportunities and resources that this team did not have. 
Um, not only that, but this team at this point was a doormat. They they became respectable under Howard Schnellenberger, but they were by no means a national championship contender, unlike the 87, 89, 91 teams, right, who all benefited from the foundation that Howard laid and the legacy continuing on even through the, the, the sanction years and the rough years and the dark periods. The old one team was able to rise from those ashes, but they still had that foundation and the benefit of past history to help lead them to back back to the mountaintop. This team, there was no mountaintop. They had to climb the mountain themselves. They're the first ones to get there. They planted the flag for this program. They made Miami football a national power uh, with this victory and made them respectable and made the rest of the country take notice. So that's the other important part about it. Um, the other thing was, man, Howard Schnellenberger, the, the granddaddy of them all, the architect, right? The guy whose pipe is so famous, they had to put it in Sebastian the Ibis's mouth. Come on, that's all Howard. And of course, his, his tricky dicky recruit, his recruiting tool, leaving that pipe at recruits homes and having to come back and pick it up just because he, he can have another conversation with it, right? So, I mean, you got great coaches as well. You had Howard, you know, NFL coaches like Olive Dowdy and Gary Stevens. You know, Hubbard Alexander spent time in the NFL. All these guys, Mark Tressman, very impressive coaches uh, with, with good coaching careers. You had guys like Bernie Kozar, uh, Eddie Brown, Albert Bentley. Now, here's another stat, and, and I'm only going to use this stat this way because it could get a little confusing since a lot of the teams overlap in terms of players. How many players were drafted immediately after the national championship, right? So how many draft-eligible players after they won the championship got drafted? This team had seven players drafted, um, which is not a whole lot, and the high, and most of them were in the late rounds. Only two were drafted pretty high, and that was Glenn Dennison, the tight end, and Jay Brophy in the second round. They both won in the second round. So no first-round picks on this team, okay? That's another impressive stat because you know there were first-round picks on that 87 team, 89, 91, and we all know how loaded that old one team was, right? So this is the team that did the most with the least in terms of talent, um, did the most in, with the least in terms of resources, foundation, history, legacy. Um, they, had, they didn't have the leg up that the other teams that came after them had with those things. And, you know, they had also the, the, um, the challenge and the obstacle of having to overcome the stigma within the South Florida community and college football at large of this program being a doormat and being a joke and not being worth watching. Um, and having to convince these kids to come and play for their hometown team. And they did it and they created this juggernaut as a result. We all know how it all ended. You know, Howard left for the USFL, which never materialized. Jimmy Johnson comes in. This team keeps rolling in the future, winning additional national championships. But why is the 1983 Miami Hurricanes team the greatest of all time? Well, for those reasons I just said, they're the OGs. They're the ones that laid the foundation for everybody else. They did the most with the least. Arguably had the the most difficult opponent in the national championship game uh, based on the way that Nebraska team was rolling. And largest underdog or the only underdog possibly out of the five national championship teams, underdog of 10 and a half points going into the game. And let's not forget, they came from way back, you know, ranked fifth going into the game to pull this one out and come out with the national championship. Of course, that's, that's not all them. A lot of that was just good fortune of the teams in front of them losing, but they put themselves in that position 
and they beat a team, a team that was so impressive that they had to leapfrog Auburn and win that national championship and be awarded the title. So there you have it. That is why the 1983 Miami Hurricanes football team is the greatest Canes championship team of all time. All right, next episode I'll go with 87, and we'll have a nice discussion about that. Go Canes.